0: From 1 Kings chapter 11 verse 26 and that'll go through to chapter 12 verse 19 <clears throat> also Jeroboam son of Nebat rebelled against the king he was one of Solomon's officials an Ephraimite from Zeradar, and his mother was a widow named Zerua here is the account of how he rebelled against the king Solomon had built the supporting terraces and had filled in the gap in the wall of the city of David his father. Now Jeroboam was a man of standing. When Solomon saw how well the young man did his work, he put him in charge of the whole labour force of the house of Joseph. About that time Jeroboam was going out of Jerusalem, and Ahijah, the prophet of Shiloh, met him on the way, wearing a new cloak. The two of them were alone out in the country, and Ahijah took hold of his new cloak he was wearing and tore it into twelve pieces. Then he said to Jeroboam, Take the ten pieces for yourself, for this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. See, I am going to tear the kingdom out of Solomon's hands and give you ten tribes. But for the sake of my servant David and the city of Jerusalem, which I have chosen out of all the tribes of Israel, he will have one tribe." I will do this because they have forsaken me and worshipped Ashereth, the goddess goddess of the Sidonians, Chemosh, the god of the Moabites, and Moloch, the god of the Ammonites, and have not walked in my ways, nor done what is right in my eyes, nor kept my statutes and laws as David, Solomon's father, did. But But I will not take the whole kingdom out of Solomon's hands. I have made him ruler all the days of his life for the sake of David, my servant whom I chose and who observed my commands and statutes. I will take the kingdom from his son's hands and give you ten tribes. I will give one tribe to his son so that David, my servant, may always have a, city, have a lamp built before me in Jerusalem, the city where I chose to put my name. However, as for you, I will take you and you will rule over all that your heart desires. You will be king over Israel. If you do whatever I command you and walk in my ways and do what is right in my eyes by keeping my statutes and my commands, as David my servant did, I will be with you. I will build you a dynasty as enduring as the one I built for David and will give Israel to you. I will humble David's descendants because of this, but not forever. Solomon tried to kill Jeroboam, but Jeroboam fled to Egypt to Shishak the king and stayed there until Solomon's death. As for the other events of Solomon's reign, all he did and the wisdom he, dis- he displayed, are they not written in the Book of the Annals of Solomon? Solomon reigned in Jerusalem all over Israel for forty years. Then he rested with his fathers and was buried in the city of David his father. And Rehoboam his son succeeded him as king. Rehoboam went to Shechem, for all the Israelites had gone there to make him king. When Jeroboam son of Nebat heard this, He was still in Egypt, where he had fled from King Solomon. He returned from Egypt. So they sent for Jeroboam, and he and the whole assembly of Israel went to Rehoboam and said to him, Your father put a heavy yoke on us, but now lighten the harsh labour and the heavy yoke he put on us, and we will serve you. Rehoboam answered, Go away for three days, and then come back to me. So the people went away. Then King Rehoboam consulted the elders who had served his father Solomon during his lifetime. "'How would you advise me to answer these people?' he asked. They replied, "'If today you will be a servant to these people and serve serve them and give them a favourable answer, they will always be your servants.' But Rehoboam rejected the advice the elders gave him and consulted the young men who had grown up with him and were serving him. He asked them, "'What is your advice? How should we answer these people?' who say to me, lighten the yoke your father put on us. The young men who had grown up with him replied, tell these people who have said to you, your father put a heavy yoke on us, but make our yoke lighter, tell them, my little finger is thicker than my father's waist. My father laid on you a heavy yoke, I will make it even heavier. My father scourged you with whips, I will scourge you with scorpions. Three days later Jeroboam and all the people returned to Rehoboam. As the king had said, come back to me in three days. The king answered the people harshly, rejecting the advice given by his elders. He followed the advice of the young men and said, My father made your yoke heavy, I will make it even heavier. My father scourged you with whips, I will scourge you with scorpions. So the king did not listen to the people. And for this turn of events was was from the Lord. To fulfil the word the Lord had spoken to Jeroboam, son of Nebat, through Ahijah, the Shilonite. When all Israel saw that the king refused to listen to them, they answered the king, What share do we have in David? What part of Jesse's son? To your tents, O Israel, look after your own house, O David. So the Israelites went home. But as for the Israelites who were living in the towns of Judah, Rehoboam still ruled over them. King Rehoboam sent out Adoniram, who was in charge of forced labour, but all Israel stoned him to death. King Rehoboam managed however managed to get into his chariot and escape to Jerusalem. So Israel has been in rebellion against the house of David to this day.
1: All right, then let's spell in prayer, shall we? Father, thank you for your word, and we pray now that you'd help us to focus and consider what you're saying to us personally so that we would uh, be more faithful in our relationship with you and we pray this in jesus name amen recently i was invited to speak to at a meeting of christian business people Uh, it's a meeting where christian businessmen and women get together every so often and they network with one another they swap business cards um, swap telephone numbers they promote their products and their services to each other. They uh, eat some food and they have someone give a talk. A um, Christian leader giving a talk. And so I was asked to speak at this meeting and my thoughts uh, were well what do I speak on? So I said to the organiser why don't I speak on 1 Timothy chapter 6. You know where Paul says that uh, people who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap. And uh, where it says that some who are eager for money have wandered from the faith and have pierced themselves with many griefs. I said, how about we talk about that? I'm not quite sure that that's what he wanted me to talk about. Um, He might have had other things on his mind. But uh, I think it's something which we all need to think about, isn't it? Now, there's nothing wrong with money. We need money. Money is just a medium of exchange in our society. And we need people who will own businesses and employ other people and so on and they need to be encouraged to to do that in a godly way and so on. But we all get tempted, don't we? Uh, The uh, lure of money, the lure of materialism, the lure of uh, the lifestyle that uh, money can offer us is very seductive. And so no matter who we are, whether we are an employer or an employee, whether we are retired, or studying, or unemployed, or a homemaker, or whatever. We all live in this society which is very wealthy, uh, where we have one of the, possibly the best uh, lifestyles in the world. And as we see the possibilities of improving our position, we can get caught up in materialism and in lifestyle, uh, even in power. Because when your business expands and you put on more people and you set up new branches, your power uh, increases. Uh, When you climb the ladder at work, get the promotion and so on, your authority and your power increases with that. And it's not impossible for us to end up kind of in practice at least forgetting that God has spoken and that we must listen to him and obey him now say it's not impossible for us to forget that because we know that that is exactly what happened to king solomon exactly what happened to him Do you remember if you were here with us a few weeks back maybe four weeks back uh, we saw that in the bible in deuteronomy chapter 17 that god had spoken a specific word to any future king of israel And uh, there were certain uh, things which were commanded of the king of Israel. There were certain things that the king of Israel must never acquire for himself. Do you remember anything about looking at Deuteronomy 17 a few weeks back? No. (laughs) Don't worry, I'm going to help you out here. Um, Deuteronomy 17, really important. A few things that a king of Israel was not to acquire for himself were, anyone remember? Horses, yep, that's right. Anything else? Gold, yeah, lucre. yep. Wives, that's right, okay. Now, you see, horses, he wasn't to acquire many horses for himself because in the ancient world, horses were a status symbol. You know, the measure of a man was how many horses he had in his stable. Well, we're told in One Kings that Solomon acquired twelve thousand horses for himself. What about um, gold and silver? Uh, God richly blessed the kingdom of Israel with great wealth, but we're told in One Kings that Solomon ended up using it to, you know, to increase the opulence of his own lifestyle. And what about women? Why was it that he wasn't he wasn't supposed to marry many women? I can think of quite a few reasons, actually, but particularly women from other nations. Why was he not to marry women from other nations? Because they would, yeah, they'd lead him away from God, wouldn't wouldn't, wouldn't they? But uh, in 1 Kings, we read that uh, Solomon acquired a few women for himself. How many wives did he have? Um, someone mentioned 300, but that's 300 concubines. How many wives did he have? 700, 1,000 women acquired for himself. He had a harem, uh, as it says in Ecclesiastes, the delights of the heart of man, which did not satisfy him. And so you know, he's disobeyed the word of God. You know, Deuteronomy 17 said that the King of Israel must make for himself his own scroll of the commands in Deuteronomy 17, um, keep it for himself, and he must read it all the days of his life so that he put it into practice. Deuteronomy 17 also said that any king of Israel must not consider himself to be any better than any other fellow Israelite, right? But Solomon, the wisest man in the world, neglected God's word, specific instructions to him, the king. And uh, as Paul warns in 1 Timothy chapter 6, he fell into a trap, And he wandered away from God. Uh, Solomon ended up living pretty much like any other pagan king in the Middle East at the time. Except only better than any pagan king. Now today we turn to 1 Kings chapters 11 and 12. And we come to what is essentially a turning point in the kingdom of Israel. Life had been very sweet for Solomon and one of the sweetest things that anyone who's in leadership can experience uh, is to experience a period where they have no opposition, where they have no enemies, where they have no one who's trying to stab them behind their backs. Uh, That is a sweet position to be in as a politician. And uh, Solomon during this time had no enemies, extraordinary situation to be in. Well, all that was now about to change. Uh, If you open your Bibles at 1 Kings chapter 11, we are told that that God raised up three enemies for Solomon. By the way, the word in the Hebrew for enemies is the word Satan. Just thought I'd throw that one in. Uh, This is is Satan in the general sense, just being the general enemies here. Uh, Three enemies... Uh, Hadid the Edomite read about him in verse 14 in verse 23 we read about someone called Rezon, the son of Eliada uh, you can read about these guys in your own time I don't want to focus on them today I want to focus on the third enemy the one who is the real problem for Solomon and we meet him in chapter 11 verse 26 and I'm going to read that for you uh, if you want to follow chapter 11 verse 26 It says, also, Jeroboam, son of Nebat, rebelled against the king. He was one of Solomon's officials, an Ephraimite from Zerudah, and his mother was a widow named Zeruah. Jeroboam, son of Nebat. I want you to remember that name. How could you forget that name? (laughs) It's a great name, isn't it? Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. Now, there's a contrast between Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, and Solomon. Solomon lives in the opulence of his palace. Uh, He is remote and out of touch from the ordinary working class man. But Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, well, he actually worked down on the construction sites. Uh, He was a foreman. And he was such a good foreman that he was actually later put into a high position. Uh, in the whole kind of construction department of Solomon's government. Jeroboam knew firsthand how the ordinary working class man felt, particularly about life and politics. And the way that they saw it is that they were slogging their guts out, working down, building these big buildings for Solomon. Uh, they were working long hours, they were paying a lot of tax and they were doing so so that the king could live like a king. They might say things haven't changed much, have they? Hey? Right? But that's how they felt. And uh, so in verses 29 to 40, God sent a prophet to speak to Jeroboam the son of Nebat. Nebat. And I want to focus on that because this prophet was very dramatic in the way that he delivered his prophecy. He approaches Jeroboam one day and he's wearing this brand new cloak. That's the prophet. And the prophet introduces himself and then he takes off his cloak and then he rips it to shreds. He rips it it into 12 pieces and he says to Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, he says, I want you to pick up from the floor ten of those pieces of the cloak and have it for yourself. And the reason is this. The message that God is giving you is that he is about to tear the kingdom away from Solomon and his dynasty. And God is going to make you the king And he's going to make you the king of 10 of the tribes of Israel. There's 12 tribes in Israel. Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, is going to become the king of 10 of those tribes. Now, that means that he's not going to rule over the whole of Israel. And the reason for that is because God had promised that one of David's descendants would always sit on the throne in Jerusalem. Uh, we see that in verse 32, if you care to look at that. In verse 32, it reads, I've just got to find it myself. Ah, yes. But for the sake of my servant David and the city of Jerusalem, which I have chosen out of all the tribes of Israel, he will have one tribe. Now, it actually means two tribes. The reason for that is that the, the one tribe is the tribe of Judah, which is where we get the name Jew from. But there was another much smaller tribe called Benjamin, and it's, Benjamin is often thought of and uh, talked about in terms of being the same as the tribe of Judah. And so what we have here is a prophecy that the greatest kingdom in the world, the kingdom of Israel, was now going to be split in two. I wonder if whoever's got the gizmo can put the slide up on the screen at this point. Thank you. Uh, It's going to be split in two. There will be a northern kingdom comprising of ten tribes of Israel and there will be a southern kingdom which is called Judah. Now, thanks Ben. Apparently there'd always been some kind of tension between the northern tribes and the southern tribes And you can understand how that happens, can't you? Uh, Jerusalem, the centre of the kingdom, was in the south. And it's often the case that uh, people in any country uh, where they are living a long way away from the capital city can often feel a bit neglected, can't they? And if there's going to be kind of uh, tension or uh, disdain for the politicians, that's where it's going to come from. I, I remember a few. There was a, a few decades ago that people living up around Tamworth and Armidale and Inverell and Glen Innes um, felt a bit that way. Do you remember that? Anyone old enough to remember that? What did they want to form, David? They wanted to form a a new state. A new state. They they were fed up. They thought, you know, we're producing all this agriculture, and uh, you know, Macquarie Street couldn't care less about us. Let's secede from the state of New South Wales. Let's go it alone. Can't say I blame them. And there's still a few people around who'd like to do that, apparently. Okay. So it's not an uncommon thing for people in remote areas to feel a bit neglected by the capital. But what about Israel? How did this split actually happen? Well, uh, in uh, chapter 11, verse 43, Uh, We read that Solomon died. There's not a lot of fanfare about his death. The author of One Kings just reports his death in the way that they reported any other ordinary king, uh, which is testimony to the fact that he didn't finish the race very strong at all spiritually. And in verse 43, or rather after that, uh, his son uh, was to become the king. Now, his son's name was Rehoboam. You might wish that he'd been called something other than Rehoboam because Rehoboam is so easy to confuse with Jeroboam. But uh, try to get this right if you can. Jeroboam, son of Nebat, he's going to be the king in the north. Rehoboam, son of Solomon, he's going to be king of Judah. Let me tell you something about Rehoboam. He was stupid. There's no other way of putting it. He was not a very wise man. I'll show you why. In chapter 12, he made three crazy decisions. Um, The first crazy decision is in verse 1. Because he chose to be anointed as king, not in Jerusalem, but where? Where does it say in verse 1 that he chose to be anointed as king? In a place called Shechem. Now, Shechem is way up north. Shechem, that's where the people live who don't like the king. That's where the people live who are fed up and feel alienated and, and ripped off. And so he decides to go up there to get himself anointed. Bad move. Because when he goes up there, Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who had kind of moved to Egypt for a little while because he was frightened of Solomon, he comes back and he gathers together a whole crowd of people who go to meet up with, with uh, Rehoboam on their turf up in the north in Shechem. And that's what leads to the second crazy decision. Listen to what the crowd said to him in verses 4 and 5. Verse 4, uh This is what the crowd said to him. They said to him, your father put a heavy yoke on us but now lighten the harsh labour and the heavy yoke he put on us and we will serve you. Rehoboam answered, go away for three days and then come back to me. So the people went away. So he said, go away for three days, I'll have a think about it, come back and I'll tell you my answer. Um, What do you think about their request, by the way? Was it a reasonable request? Sounds like it from what we know, doesn't it? Very reasonable request. Well, Rehoboam decided to seek advice from two different groups of people. In verse 6, he called together the, the elders, uh, the men who had been his father's advisors. And what did they say? Well, in verse 7, they replied... If today you will be a servant to these people and serve them and give them a favourable answer, they will always be your servant. Well, he didn't think much of that advice. So he decided to ask a few of his mates instead. Verses 10 and 11. He went to the young people. And the young men who'd grown up with him replied, Tell these people who have said to you, Your father put a heavy yoke on us, but make our yoke lighter. Tell them... My father's little finger is thicker than my father's, my little finger rather is thicker than my father's waist. My father laid on you a heavy yoke, I will make it even heavier. My father scourged you with whips, I will scourge you with scorpions. Now, whose advice do you reckon you should have followed? The young men's advice? The older men's advice? I don't think he should have followed any of their advice. Not one of no, they, were, they were both wrong. They are both wrong. I mean, the advice of the elders sounds better, doesn't it? Uh, but why did they advise him to agree to their request? Uh, was it because to lower the taxes and to lower the workload on people would be just and fair and righteous and holy? Uh, was it so that uh, by reducing taxes that the wealth of the nation would be more equitably distributed, so that people would be more prosperous as a whole? Uh, was it because it's the sort of thing that God would have wanted? Was that why they advised him to give in to the request? No. No. Through their years of experience, these grey haired advisers had just learned how to become shrewd, cunning politicians. Um, They knew that if Rehoboam pretended to be a friend of the people, that uh, they would like that, and then he could turn their hearts so that they would end up being a servant of him. Their advice was ungodly. Uh, the king of Israel is not to be served, but to serve. But the advice of the young men—that was just plain, plain, stupid. It was crazy. You know, they said to them, "You, you got to, you got to let these people know who's boss. <laughs> uh, that's what you got to do. You have got to stamp your authority. You know, they're coming to you and saying, you know, the taxes are too high. You know, can you lower them?" You've got to respond to that by saying, no, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to start up a GST. <laughs> I'm going to increase the taxes. Stamp your authority. Let them know who's boss. Whose advice should he have followed? I reckon he should have followed God's advice, actually. That would have been a smart move. Um, well, he, he needed to actually go back to what God says in the Bible in the scriptures. Um, And he would have been much better off with that three days that he'd given to have spent time actually reading what the scriptures say, particularly Deuteronomy chapter 17, meditating upon that and praying and asking God to give him wisdom. Now it's good to, you know, this is important for us actually in our lives because there's times when we need to make some important decisions and decisions that you just can't make like that. And it's smart to seek advice from people, particularly older people who are wise and experienced. You know, the the really wise young person is the one who realises they don't know everything and it would be smart to talk to an older person so long as that person is godly and wise but a really excellent thing to do when we have to make decisions big decisions is to set aside some time to actually read the bible on the issues now the bible doesn't speak to every circumstance that we'll be in but if you're a, a husband or a wife or a mother or or a father or a child or an employer or an employee or if you're about to marry someone or whatever the Bible's got heaps of things to say about these matters and you spend time reading the Bible and praying to God and just asking God to to help you to make the decision to give you the wisdom to make a decision which actually brings honour to Him uh, there's been a number of times in my life when I've been at a crossroads and I've had to make an important decision and I've actually just set aside time uh, to do exactly half a day, even a day, to, to just do that. And one of the great things about coming to God for his wisdom is that uh, in the end, even though it's a struggle making the decision, in the end you know it's that whatever the consequences of that, that God has led you and yet you don't have, live with regrets. And so even when it gets hard afterwards, you know, no, I actually brought that matter before God in prayer. God led me. God helped me to make that decision. And so it was the right decision to make. Now, Rehoboam did not do that. In verse 14, he followed the advice of the younger men and so in verse 16, he lost the kingdom. Have a look at verse 16. When all Israel saw that the king refused to listen to them, they answered the king, what share do we have in David? What part in Jesse's son? To your tents, O Israel, look after your own house, O David. So it's kind of a nice poetic way of saying we're splitting this kingdom. We, you don't care about us. We're leaving. And that's it. The kingdom's now split. But then he made a third crazy decision. It's in verse 18. These northern tribes have just declared their independence because of oppression, because of harsh labor, and too high taxes. And so Rehoboam sends someone to to meet with them, presumably to talk talk them around to actually rejoining the kingdom. And so what sort of a person do you think he'd send? You think he might send someone who maybe understands their plight? You think he might send someone who they feel that they can relate to? But who does he send? He sends the man who is in charge of forced labor, basically the boss of slavery. (laughs) He sends them. He sends him to talk to them. How do you think that they handled that? Well, we, we're told what they did. They picked up stones and they stoned the bloke to death. Right? And then they anointed Jeroboam as their king. Friends, from this point on, the great kingdom of Israel is, is now split into a weak, um, spite into two weak spiteful nations that are continuing, continually at each other's throats. And the books of one and two kings now kind of switch backwards and forwards, telling the story of the northern kingdom, telling the story of the southern kingdom, telling the story of the kings of the northern kingdom, telling the stories of the kings of the southern kingdom. you now got two nations. You've now got two stories. And it's not a pretty picture. Uh, Because over the next few hundred years or so, in the southern kingdom, there were only two kings who were evaluated as being godly men. Uh, One's called Josiah, and the other one's called Hezekiah. You think that's bad? In the northern kingdom, there's not one king who is evaluated as being a godly king over hundreds of years into the future from this point. In fact, uh, when you read through 1 and 2 Kings, there is one scathing judgement that keeps on being made against the kings of the northern kingdom, and it's this. He continued the sins of Jeroboam the son of Nebat. That's a refrain that keeps on recurring throughout 1 and 2 Kings he continued the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. Now, what were the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat? Well, chapter 12, verse 25. Then Jeroboam fortified Shechem in the hill country of Ephraim and lived there. From there he went out and built up Peniel, Jeroboam thought to himself, the kingdom will now likely revert to the house of David. If these people go up to offer sacrifices at the temple of the Lord in Jerusalem, they will again give their allegiance to their Lord Rehoboam, king of Judah. They will kill me and return to King Rehoboam. After seeking advice, the king made two golden calves. He said to the people, is it, too much? it is too much for you to go up to Jerusalem? Here are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. One he set up in Bethel and the other in Dan. And this thing became a sin. The people went out even as far as Dan to worship the one there. Jeroboam built shrines on high places and appointed priests from all sorts of people, even though they were not Levites. He instituted a festival on the 50th day of the eighth month, like the festival held in Judah, and offered sacrifices on the altar. This he did in Bethel, sacrificing to the calves he had made. And at Bethel he also installed priests at the high places he had made. On the 15th day of the 8th month, a month of his own choosing, he offered sacrifices on the altar he had built at Bethel. So he instituted the festival for the Israelites and went up to the altar to make offerings. Now I've got to tell you that God had made a very specific promise to Jeroboam the son of Nebat when the prophet came to him and ripped the the cloak up. And God had said to him that if you obey my commands, if you love and honour and serve me, then you'll have this kingdom forever. Right? But whose advice did Jeroboam follow? The advice of men the advice of his political advisers here was his problem that great temple that we learnt about last week had been built down in jerusalem that was a great draw card for people and his concern was that his people were all going to go down to jerusalem in order to worship god there at the temple And that if they did that because of their hard affection for the temple and for God that they would actually be drawn back into the kingdom and that they would become subjects again of Rehoboam, the son of Solomon. So he wanted to quarantine his people. He didn't want them going down to Jerusalem. So what did he do? Well he started up his own religion, that's what he did thought that's easy, you know, uh, he, um, he set up some idols, you know, golden calves and says here are your gods who brought you up out of Egypt. Does that remind you of anyone, anything else? All right. He set up these idols, he built some shrines, he appointed priests who weren't even Levites. He started up a new religious festival on the date of his own choosing to kind of coincide or to, to be a rival to the one that was happening down in Jerusalem. And in verse 29, he sold the whole idea of these new religious practices to his people by saying, oh, look, Jerusalem's a long way to go to. You know, it's not very convenient for you to travel down there to worship God, so just worship God locally up here. Even though it says that some of them end up going to Dan, which was quite some way away to worship. It was a religion of idolatry and convenience It was a religion that was pervasive. Uh, It led to the introduction of Baal worship and Asherah poles, all sorts of idolatry and wicked practices, which remained in the northern kingdom until its total destruction of the kingdom. Now, what are we to make of all of this? And how does it help us as Christians well, firstly, I want to suggest that the collapse of Israel um, really ought to cause us to ask certain questions, particularly about God's promise to Abraham, because uh, you recall that God had promised that Abraham's descendants would live in God's promised land, that uh, they would, uh, that, that, that God would be their God, and that they would be living under God's blessing and that really seemed to have been fulfilled in the reign of Solomon where we saw that they had peace and prosperity and there was numerous as the sand on the seashore and every man you know, living under his fig tree and vine and so on the promise seemed to have been fulfilled at the time of Solomon but how long did it last one measly generation that was it But in the midst of the foolishness and the politics in these chapters, God is very much at work. Because in chapter 11, I think it is verse 15, we see that those events happened in fulfilment of what God had already said, was his judgement that was taking place. And we see also that, that a king in the line of David would still sit on the throne in Jerusalem. God had promised David that his kingship, that his dynasty would last forever. And that points us to Jesus, doesn't it? Because as we've seen over the last few weeks, that ultimately God's kingdom is not some weak, uh, war-torn Middle Eastern country, that it's a heavenly kingdom, It's a kingdom which you and I can belong to if if we turn our lives over to our King, Jesus, who's died for us, who's risen again. Have you done that? I hope so. But secondly, today's passage shows us very clearly that when God says something, he means it. God doesn't muck around. He is serious. If God says in Deuteronomy chapter 17 that that the king of Israel must not acquire horses and gold and silver and women for himself, if God says in Deuteronomy 17 that a king of Israel must not consider himself to be above any other Israelite, then God means that. God did not hesitate to to rip the kingdom away from Solomon who is the most powerful man in the world. In Romans chapter 13 we're told that all leaders, all presidents, all kings, all prime ministers, all governments, all business leaders, that all people in authority hold that position because God allows them to do so. That he is the king of kings and the lord of lords. Solomon became intoxicated by power and wealth. He allowed it to dominate his life. But friends, life is not about those things. Life is about trusting God and serving Him who is the giver of all life. It doesn't matter who you are. Rich people, poor people, powerful people, weak people. Every one of us is subject to God's rule and authority and every one of us must take God's word seriously. No matter how powerful you are in this life, no matter how many people you rule over, no matter how wealthy you might be, every one of us needs to obey the word of God. Solomon learnt that the hard way. God has been very kind to us in giving us his word so that we might not make the same mistake. Let's pray. Our gracious Father, we thank you for your word and for its authority. We do uh, pray, Lord God, that uh, we would be submissive to your word Father we pray that we would see that life is about serving and honouring you, that it is not about self-gratification, it's not about the acquiring of possessions and the building of our own little kingdoms. Protect us from that Lord God. Protect us from the desire to grow rich. May we be people who desire to be rich in you. May we be generous people. May we not consider ourselves to be better than others. May we be servants. We pray, Father God, that you would protect us from the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, that you would preserve us and protect us from false religion that is an outward form and an outward show of religiosity, but does not have you at the center.